This episode is recorded on Jar Jar Wurrung country, and we want to pay our respects to the original creatives of this land and their elders past, present and future. Welcome back to another episode of Country Creatives. We are your hosts, Reese Hendy and... That's the sound of Caleb not being in the studio today. He's very busy with family. He's got a little bit going on and we'll, we'll do an update with him when he's back. Very exciting. Today we chat with Justin Balmain, who is a multidisciplinary artist. Started off in painting, now moved through to visual media, moving image, video. It's a shame Caleb's not here because a very interesting chat about Justin's process how he came up with the concept and what it looks like now. Very interesting journey. Hope you enjoy. Justin, thanks for joining us. Thank, thanks for having me, Reese. It's good to be here. Yeah, flying solo today without Caleb, which is a bit different for me. And also, given that you're in Caleb's zone of video, editing, production, well, I'm interested to find out how you define it more specifically, mm-hmm. but... Um, yeah, it'd be interesting to have a chat, given that I know a little bit less in this space than probably he does. So why don't you introduce yourself, your creative background, and we can lead into what you're up to now. My name's Justin Balmain. I'm a visual artist living currently in Bendigo. I moved up here from Melbourne at the beginning of last year, 2022. I've been working here at Emporium, sort of part-time, and I also have a studio in Melbourne at Gertrude Contemporary. I'm part of their studio program there. Yeah, nice one. I first saw in the Emporium Creative Hub this huge desk set up on the table with these fancy little scrolly ball things. It's a crazy work set up. So what kind of work are you doing? So my practice is primarily video. So what you would have witnessed when I moved in, I was in the final editing and colour grade stages of a large video artwork slash film project that I've been working on since 2021. So a long form project. Yeah, all that was basically like, I guess like professional sort of editing and colour grade gear just to try and make my life a little bit easier. I can step into these roles without the, the imposter syndrome so much if I've got the toys. So you've moved to Bendigo from Melbourne, but we were chatting off air a little bit earlier and you've had a bit of a journey in your creative career so far. Why don't we um, take a step back and like what got you into being a creative? When was the first moment you noticed that you were going to have a creative lifestyle or career? I'm going to tell the truth, but it, it sounds pretty bad and made up. But as a kid, like I used to draw constantly and I think it... I always knew that, not that I knew what I wanted to be, but I always knew that I wanted to be a creative in some capacity. And I think like even in high school, like I didn't really know that to be an artist was an option. It wasn't really until I finished high school and moved to Sydney that I actually realised there was the possibility to be an artist. So yeah, then I went to art school at the National Art School in Sydney for my undergrad. I studied in painting there. But it's just something that I feel like it's just something that I've always known I wanted to do. Even as a kid, it's like I feel like I would tell people that I wanted to be an artist and that just stuck. Yeah. You oh, know? that's good. You had that mantra from yeah, the get-go. Yeah, oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah. It's my son now, like, Otto, he's telling me now that he wants to be an artist. But I was definitely that kid, and I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And as I moved into high school and then started studying, it, it was just, like, the one thing that seemed... It seemed the most important thing to me that I should be doing. Yeah. So I guess, like, in a very dogmatic way, I just stuck to that journey. And it started off in painting. Yeah, so I did my undergrad in painting. Like, I really wanted to be a painter. I think that growing up regionally, going to a regional high school, studying art at school, the kind of the tools, I guess, like the educational, but also the practical tools available to me at that time were quite limited, which sort of made my my kind of construct of an artist quite narrow and primarily limited to painting. So mm. I was like, oh, painting equals artist. So I, when I went to art school, painting primarily was my focus because that was what I'd been situated in 
through high school and like I loved painting and I still do like painting. But yeah, once once I graduated and spent a few years like exploring being an artist through painting, I don't know, maybe I found my feet more as an artist like once I'd graduated, which I'm sure is the case for all, you know, graduates. And then from there somehow just moved into different forms of technology which sort of led to video. But yeah, my interest always comes from because of painting. I think I do have this very sort of material like tactile sense of making work even if it's in something like video. Yeah, it's interesting uni even though you might have studied painting, you're probably learning how to be a creative, how to be a professional creative or how to dial in on your craft and whether that leads to moving out of that particular medium. You learn some some methods and some theories about how to think about your craft more so than just how to do brush strokes on a page. So I'm sure maybe you've picked up a few techniques in that way. How do you think painting has helped you move into other mediums? What is there anything that you take from there specifically? One of the things that I really took away from my education and background in painting was this sense of like the history of the medium and working in painting at that time and in the, in the years after graduating i think that there was all this always this kind of relationship with the past like you're always aware or it was always communicated that you wanted to be in dialogue with other paintings with the history of the medium and i think a big part of that is like a not just a familiarity in a tactile sense but a recognition of where the medium's been where it is currently and what its possibilities are moving forward i guess through my education there was this sort of understanding that you weren't doing this to repeat what had happened you're really trying to move the progressing the medium forward in some sense so i guess i almost saw it like you had two subjects you had the subject of the thing that you were painting whether that's like a portrait or a landscape not that I was doing these things but just as a really basic example so you had your portrait as a subject and then you had this other subject which was i guess the history and how you wanted to communicate within that medium and potentially move it forward yeah yeah and that that's translated into videography and editing and i want to touch on that a little bit because you've got a pretty substantial project that you've been working on that i'm really keen to dive into talking about but i want to just figure out a little bit more about your switch between mediums and maybe a little bit more about your journey as a creative so from painting at what point did you switch into other mediums and how have you made that your career how have you managed to do that when I was painting f- sort of full-time exhibiting work and selling work, I guess I just became like quite unsatisfied with not so much the discipline because I always loved the tactility of making paintings and I really loved the act of it, but I didn't like where it was going from like my perspective. I felt like I was very much making artwork that was like talking to an art world audience, talking to other artists. I guess I just didn't have feel like I had a connection with people outside of that system. And I really wanted that. Like, that was one of the reasons I wanted to be an artist, and that's why I, that's why I enjoyed art as, like, a kid. And, like, when I would travel, like, I liked that access to a culture through, like, a visual language. And I guess I felt like working within that sort of more, I guess, like a sort of a critical kind of space it was within a closed sort of system, like an art world system. It's kind of like academic art, where sure. it's a bit hard to a bit hard to access that for the general public and understand some of those deeper concepts, isn't it? Yeah, and you would get other artists would, they'd be like, this is great, I really like this work. But then, and not that this necessarily is the, um, like you, you, the work needs to communicate to everyone, but I would get frustrated that people would be like, I don't get it, I don't understand it. Like, I mean, that's all fine. It's not like everything has to be communicated in a very literal mm. sort of way. But I guess I found that frustrating that it was just sitting within this system, a very closed like kind of art world system. And I think I just wanted to work inside of that, but also outside of it. I was always really interested in photography at art school. I really struggled between what to take as a major. 
So I came back to photography actually and within my painting I started working with photographic collage so that became a big part of like my visual language. Working with photographic material almost like as a formal sort of like colour property. I might be looking at using like photographs of the ocean because just because I wanted blue. So it was this very formal sort of way of working photographic imagery into my painting. And so I guess through that, and particularly what I was saying with my interest in like the medium and the materiality of what I was working with, I just, I became much more invested in the, I guess, material, the history of the material being like photography or whatever, the same way that I was with painting. Where do I go with that? Yeah, that's, oh, it's interesting. I can see this gradual progression of slowly moving from painting to still image to now video. Are you solely working in the video space now? Is your practice mixed? Yeah, I, it's definitely mixed. I think that video is the one that I sort of work on the majority of the time and it's the one I guess that's more present. Like when I exhibit or I talk to people in my studio about my practice, video tends to be the dominant theme but I think that's also got a lot to do with the process and the the projects are quite big and all-encompassing they almost sit at the forefront like I work in a lot of different mediums particularly in the studio and some of it might just be exploratory it might be like at the moment I'm doing watercolor towards thinking towards a new project in a way that's become like an access point into the project it's really hard just to have an idea, write it down, or however you might want to construct the idea in your head, and then just go and do it. Like video is really difficult. Video it's probably not, but the video that I'm interested in making, it very much is the production level that's needed. Drawing, watercolour, getting ideas down quickly in the studio is a way for me to start, I guess, imaging towards a project again in like a tactile way without just writing it all down having it all in the computer not being able to move forward with the project because the projects are big you have to be conscious is not the right word but you're investing when you're jumping into a large project you've got other people involved you've got their time you've also got money so it's a hard thing just to launch into a project you need to be really organized so for me like having things set out in a an imaged kind of way first through drawing and watercolour is, is sort of my way into those projects. You raise a, something that I find really interesting, which is people's creative process. And we've had a chat to a few different people who've discussed process, like lean filmmaking, which you might have heard a little bit about. Yeah, also, David Gagliardi's, he's got a really interesting process. And I feel like you're leaning into his kind of uh, the way he creates his ideas through the visual kind of mapping and stuff. But I'd love to hear more about that. Maybe following through this project, why don't we introduce the project that you're working on now and we can talk about the process from conception and then we can get into the guts of what it actually looks like now. So what's the title of your project and what is it? So the film project that I'm in the final completion stages of is called Three Days Without Light. And it comes out of a period of research and development with an ethnographic museum in Marseille. In What's France. ethnographic? Ethnographic museum. What's that? So it's objects, it's cultural objects. Um, and it's quite broad. The interesting thing about the museum is the way that they sort of work with objects and handle objects in a public way. So is it like a natural history museum that have, and they've got objects from around the world? Exactly, yeah. So you've got this natural history museum, like idea of an ethnographic museum, which is fine. The museum in Marseille, it's sort of the opposite of that. Like it's much more inclusive and open. It's sort of, it doesn't, try to shut things down it's not creating like the dioramas it's not trying yeah, okay. to light things in a very sort of western kind of way it feels much more like a contemporary art museum in its access but also in the way that objects are stored exhibited yeah so it's not objectifying the objects it's not objectifying the objects <laughs> okay right so that's the inspiration that was the that's the idea conception for your 
piece? Yeah, the way that relationship started, I was reading a book called The Claude Glass, um, which Claude Glasses are basically like an optical tool that historically used not just in painting, but they're very much like connected to Western image making. There's like a small kind of half paragraph in this book about a black mirror that was held in an ethnographic museum in Paris that sort of, yeah, just raised my interest. Black mirrors, small, like convex-shaped mirrors that are historically used in image making, like a, almost like a precursor to the photographic image to make paintings from. So they were made by blowing a glass ball, slicing a small section off, and then basically coating the back of it with a lead black. So you get this sort of quite a vibrant, like mirrored image, but it's not exacting in the way that a silver tinted mirror would be. Obviously silver, when mirrors were made with silver, they were very expensive to make, so they were only available to like the rich and the elite, but the black mirrors were much more accessible to, it's still expensive, like artists could get their hands on them. They were small, so they could be traveled with. So artists would take them from the studio, work, working with like self-portraits, for example, taking them out and then working in the landscape with them. So the surface of the black mirror becomes like a two-dimensional equivalence of the landscape. So it's easy to get okay. information down onto another two-dimensional surface being the canvas. It seems very non-sinister, but when I hear the word black mirror, my mind just jumps sure. and it probably could be to do with the other TV series, Black Mirror, that dives into some pretty twisted and dark topics. Yeah. Is there any connection there? I'm wondering why my mind jumps to that. Is there a connection to any sinister themes with a black mirror? Yes, there is. It's twofold, really. You've got this sort of idea of the black mirror, and I guess just through its name, it does bring up like sinister connotations. It definitely had that. It was as much as mirrors were associated with like optics and painting, image making, they were immediately picked up by the occult witchcraft. So there was this sort of other parallel element that was quite darker, which is carried through with mirrors from their inception, you know, really, as like obsidian glass. So black mirrors have always had this, but there's also been like pretty much like across all cultures, this has been historically some sort of fear around mirrors. Mm. It's sort of always there. Like even in Victorian England, there was a superstition around mirrors related to when like a family member had passed away. So all the mirrors would be covered. So there's this idea that the mirror has this ability to capture or like hold the soul either of the dead or the person like looking into the mirror. So that's where the black mirrors come into it, where because they are sort of associated with the occult and mysticism and, you know, malefic objects, basically like dark, haunted objects, there is this superstition around them. So the black mirror that, that was referred to in the book that I was reading at the time, it was in an ethnographic museum in Paris, which is no longer there. And some of the staff once the mirror came into the storage facility, I guess, at the museum, they started to become fearful. It gave them anxiety. This, it gave this them mirror. anxiety, yeah, yeah. They heard this thing was there and they didn't want it there and people were fearful of it. So the strategy that the museum devised to sort of placate or alleviate the fear that people had was to bring in a medium. So basically the medium, in a very literal way, exercised the mirror created like a series of inscriptions, drawings that actually now sit behind the mirror, between the backing and the mirror. So they, they hexed it. They somehow did something to it to reduce the... That was the plan, yeah. yeah. A series of instructions and the object was moved into a, I guess it would have been like a foam ice cream container, but basically like a foam box that was full of charcoal so the charcoal was a way to absorb any spirits that were latent in the mirror. The inscriptions that sit behind the mirror are also like a way to keep the spirits at bay. Um, I think that's interesting 
on its own as a story. But then when I started, so I found out that this object was now at the Museum, which is a very new ethnographic museum in France, 2013, I think. So they absorbed a lot of the collections from around the country into this new institution. What really fascinated me outside of this sort of connection with the history of image making, but also this other kind of like a cult component was the fact that the museum, they would acknowledge the, its history and actually maintained institutional practices to sort of maintain it's not the right word, but they're like aware that this thing's haunted, right, or that people think it's haunted. So they treat the object and they handle and store the object in a way that recognises the fact that this object's haunted. Yeah, it's history. The history of that object is honoured and recognised. Oh, who wants a haunted museum anyway? Like, of course you're going to maintain those rituals. Yeah, I totally agree. But you've, I think in the history, of, if you think about ethnographic museums, you've got this... You've got this Western institution, right, that's, that just takes objects. That's their function. Mm. And there's something about the way, like, uh, institutions almost remove objects from those cultural, historical connections mm. in a way. It becomes annexed and they become something other. I was really interested that the museum didn't do that with this particular object. Another thing that was interesting is that the object, it's never been formally archived into their collection. So the object literally is in like an archival limbo because they just don't know how, like where to place it, you know what I mean? Without losing, I guess that sort of like cultural or like superstitious component because then they have to sort of break it up. They have to like, I guess, demystify it. Okay. Maybe that's what ethnographics do really well. They do demystify objects. Whereas here there's this sort of almost like a resolve to to keep this thing mystified. The interest of it is the mystery, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And I think it's easy to undo, particularly from a like a Western context. You can be like, this is like all these things that have happened around this object. It's just like coincidence. And this is just like certain people who are superstitious. Like, we can explain all that stuff away uh, and treat this thing as the kind of the inert object that the material of it is, mm. rather than the charged kind of presence of it. And I think that I saw this a connection, I guess, between this object that sort of has that charge. I've never known how to describe that, what that charge is. But I think it's analogous to like art objects as well. You have this thing and it goes into a museum and then it becomes this other more revered thing. And there's this sort of little, I don't know, the only word that I can think of that that describes or is like the delineation for that threshold for me is magic. Mm. It's just there's this magical process of taking, I use Marcel Duchamp's urinal You've got this urinal, you're peeing in it, and then an artist like puts it in a museum and then mm. it becomes something different. There's magic in that transference. Yeah, that's, a, that's an interesting one to bring up. It's the selection of the item is what makes it magic compared to if it was just back in the urinal. Yeah, it's a very interesting topic, and I can see why you're taken by this one object. There's a lot of, a lot of history to it and mystery. So you've, I'm assuming a bit of an obsession around this object because now you've it's become the bones or the backing of this self-initiated project. Yeah. So from stumbling across this interesting object to deciding you're going to create a creative project around it, how does it turn from just an idea of a really interesting subject matter into some kind of concept that you're going to execute? Where's the switch over in there and what are your first steps to then start the process? Yeah. The first step really is maybe it's like just not having any expectations. It's just being inquisitive. And I feel like with my practice, I'm inquisitive into a lot of things, but it doesn't necessarily mean that I have the intention to make a work. Sometimes it's like the bigger ideas that actually flounder and don't work out 
for me. So there's something just about being inquisitive and just asking questions and just like reaching out with the, when I found this object at the museum, it was like I contacted info out. There wasn't anyone specific. And then I just get this like huge email from a curator there so then it becomes like something else like then that little like idea that I've forgotten about after sending the email it becomes something else and then I happen to be in Europe so I contact this guy like hey can I come and visit and then it becomes something else and then I'm like okay I'd like to come back and he's like okay we'll put together a proposal so put together a proposal and then I've got a partner in the museum so then I go there for I think I was there for six weeks in 2019 so I received some funding from Australia Council for the Arts and from Create New South Wales so I was living in Sydney at the time. To create a proposal off of this sort of what I like this whimsical idea of I'm going to look into this object for creatives out there who maybe haven't gone through this process what does that even look like are you proposing that you will just research and look into something without any tangible outcomes or do you have an outcome in mind at this point no outcome no outcome in mind it's and I guess it would vary from sort of institution to institution or whatever the relationship is the relationship that I had with the curator was quite informal after we met and communicated via email for a while so I felt like I didn't necessarily need to be specific it had to go through an app I guess a proposal process because there's a board and it had to be signed off but it was really open-ended I think the main way that I defined like what a project might potentially look at is just through my bio and through images of my work and I had a series of, I guess, like mood images or like reference images that I thought that I might want to look at within a museum. But that was all pretty naive. That was just based on what I thought an ethnographic museum might look like. I don't think I encountered really any of that stuff when I was there. But there was like Google images of security guards and <laughs> dusty archives this thing was like much more being 2013 it was much more like contemporary even the archive itself felt like a contemporary art space yeah didn't there was no outcome I really just proposed that I wanted to come over there a specific that I wanted to speak obviously with the curators and the ethnographers there but also like staff security other people that might have had some sort of interaction with the object and then through that project, sort of Frederic, the curator that I initially spoke with, he became like my guy within the museum. So he was like my access point. And when I got there, it was like full access. It was amazing. The museum weren't really invested in a way that where they wanted a certain type of outcome. Like I felt like I didn't have any responsibility towards the museum once I left. Like I went in there. I filmed, I worked with a local artist who became a sort of second camera operator and we just walked around and filmed and spoke to people and it was pretty open. It'd be like, oh, what's down there? And we'd go down that corridor and we'd look at, yeah, whatever objects we would encounter in that particular space without any real destination. So it wasn't just the mirror itself that we were looking at, but also, I guess, the structure and the mechanism of the archive and how it worked literally underground. There was no pressure or responsibility from the museum to, to do anything with what I filmed or, I guess, their stakeholders, but they were very hands-off. That sounds like a great way to step into a project. It's interesting, I normally think about these kind of creative things, like you, you need the outcome to then get the funding to do the thing, but you're way back at like just ideation and getting funding to create an idea, to, ref, to refine an idea. So you've gone on a trip over to Europe to discover, did you get any heebie-jeebie moments from the item itself? Was it as creepy as you did it meet expectation? I, when I went there in 2017, when I was on a holiday in Europe and first went to meet Frederic at the museum, he showed me the object, so I'd, I'd got that out of the way. Yeah, okay. I was surprised how small it was. I think that in my mind's eye, it had loomed so large. It's seven inches, so it's literally like a seven-inch EP size, so it's really small. 
So yeah, I was surprised at like how innocuous it, it looked. When I went there and filmed, I did not look at it. At I didn't look at my reflection in the mirror, which was interesting. Like I didn't think I had that kind of superstitious component to my personality, but yeah, I wouldn't look at it. The artist that I worked with in Marseille, she's a local artist there with Algerian background. She wanted nothing to do with looking at it. So we'd yeah. be like holding the camera away from it if we were trying to like film its surface. And even when I look back at the footage, if I see the camera coming into the reflection of the object when I'm looking at it on my monitor, I instinctively want to look away from it. So I guess, yeah, there is some heebie-jeebie and that's yeah. what it revealed. Yeah, that's interesting. Okay. So you've done a bit of a research mission. So what do you do with what do you do with that? How does the project evolve from there? My first trip to the museum, which was just brief, 2017, and then my research residency was in 2019. Okay. Yeah. Still so a fair amount of time for a project to sure. evolve and oh, grow. Totally. Yeah, it's been a real um, long-form project. I guess a lot of that's by desire and just how these projects span out, but it obviously like all of us like lockdown's been a big part of that process as well when i got back and started collating and working with the footage dropping it into the editing program like i just found it really hard to i don't know to untangle it i don't know how to describe it it felt like a documentary film what i had like the material like it was i should have made a documentary with it if that makes any sense I actually met a documentary filmmaker when we were in New York and I told him about the project and he was working on a documentary in the States and he was basically like, just give it to me. I want this. This sounds so interesting from like a documentary standpoint. And I could very much relate to that when I was going through the editing process that it was because I had so much information from the museum. Like... I had background on the object, I had literature, there was information on the medium. His paintings were in the collection, so I had a lot from that end. I had a lot of anecdotal information about this object. I had a ton of video footage myself and from another videographer. So I had so much stuff. And I realised at that time, I guess, that my processes as an artist probably relies more on less information. So I found it really hard to like creatively bring anything to the table, if that makes any sense. Seeing a preview of your work, yes, it looks like maybe a very small percentage of that footage went into the final work. Is there the footage that you took over there? Does that appear in the final? None. There's none, none of it. There's none. It was, <laughs> yeah. a, wa- it was a waste of time. Oh, no, it wasn't a waste of time. Waste. But I think. I I made edits of it and I do have like edits of the footage from that trip. It just wasn't that satisfactory. One thing I knew that I really didn't want to do with this work was I didn't want the voiceover. Like I just resisted it. I'd made video works previously that had the voiceover and I always felt it existed as a little bit of a a video art trope. People do it really well. For me, I felt like through my own practice, I always felt it was like a little bit lazy and the imagery really became secondary because the voiceover is the thing that's driving the work, not so Mm. much the imagery. You can almost have any image and the the narrative that's being like... It's all voiced. Yeah, that drives the narrative, not so much the imagery. So what I started to do during lockdown because I was so frustrated with where this work was going or wasn't going, I thought, okay, I might have, I'll have a second screen and instead of doing the voice of God, I'm gonna need like a talking head. I'm gonna need something to introduce like my own voice into this material. Uh, And that was the solution at that time that I came up with. So I started writing a script for this talking head and had someone that I'd worked with before that was gonna do the talking head so we started rehearsing through that and then she she pulled out so that sort of set me on another journey of just like during lockdown just focusing on the script there was really nothing else i could do i was couldn't really go out and like film i couldn't even film the talking head even if i wanted to 
So the script really just evolved and then people came into the project that would help me with the script writing part of it. And then through that, just people became involved. My friend Bill, who was helping with the script, he recommended Trudy, who became the lead. He said, you've got to meet this actor, she's amazing. And so when I met Trudy and she became interested in the project, you know, we started doing read-throughs and working through things together. I felt like then I had to utilize that talent. Like she was so amazing and she was so interested in the project coming from like a more commercial and theatre sort of background. She was really interested in this visual art side of the project. So I would just bring, whenever I brought someone into the project, I would just really bring them in, like I'd write more for, to their strengths. So it just became evident pretty quickly that this was just needed to be like a short film. Yeah, it's taken quite a journey, almost becoming a documentary, but now it's like a very abstract form. I'm wondering how the themes of the Black Mirror, can you describe how they've come through in this? Because now it's acted and it's scripted and it's... But it also feels like maybe you're a fly on the wall a little bit and you're just observing these things happening. It sounds like it's changed completely from that initial idea. So what's your intention and what do you want people to get out of it? I don't know what I want people to get out of it. I never really think about that as an artist. It's just can't begin to conceive like what I want other people to get out of it. I think what I got out of it was when I'm working on a new project, like I've always got to be engaged. I've always got to feel like I'm challenging myself and learning something new, which obviously I did working with actors for the first time. But if I'm thinking of myself as the audience, I don't know. I guess I want different things at different moments of the process. When I was writing the script like I just wanted to be I guess a competent writer and then through that process I wanted to be able to competently develop characters that were like nuanced and felt real and then when I started filming then I wanted to do a good job of that I wanted to be a good cinematographer I wanted to be a good director because I at some point I had to realize I'm actually directing I'm not being an artist right now well I mean I am but it's like a you just it's a different hat and when you start working with people from different industries I guess particularly like the film world I think those hats need to be clear if that makes any sense yeah people there needs like to be to decision makers on when you're in that moment who's everyone looking to for the direction yeah So I guess coming outside of these spaces, these industries, I guess I've always felt like a a kind of an imposter inhabiting these zones. So I've always felt like I wanted to be competent throughout the process. I know this doesn't really answer your question, but I don't know. I don't really know what I want people or myself to take away from it. Like I'm happy that you read it as more like of an abstract work rather than something that was quite linear and I guess descriptive yeah definitely I'm wondering what how you think it connects like your thoughts on how it connects back to your initial subject matter that prompted the whole project a lot of the things that I took away from my trip to the museum were more the anecdotes like the stories the situations that happened around this mirror that sort of they're not necessarily recorded or they're not a part of it. It's like, it's document. It's They exist outside of the archive and or the museum or they exist outside of the object itself. The, so, the moments that happened around the object in exactly. its lifetime. Yeah, yeah, and there's been a lot. There's been a lot of this, these incidents, I guess, that kind of perpetuate the object's mythology. There's the fact that like a, a a female sculptor, she gave the object to the Ethnographic Museum initially, so I like that connection, the kind of artist connection to the object. Years ago, it was being exhibited somewhere in France, and I think like a school kid convinced a guard to go and have a look at it, like to cross the bollards, and I think like the next day or something, he had his appendix taken out. There was a truck that crashed that was transporting at once. So there's these stories that I was sort of fascinated with. But it's, like, really hard to bring that into a work, I guess, that's not a documentary. So I sort of wanted to, like, carry a lot of these stories into the video, not in a literal way, but just what's this object doing? Like, how's it affecting people? 
like how does it make people feel and so I guess what I just what I devised was a character who was fearful of mirrors who was scared of her reflection who was having this firstly like having a relationship with herself that was like disconnected from reality that I guess was facilitated through the mirror like through her representation so there's this mirror that sort of moves throughout the narrative that I guess becomes a stand-in for the black mirror even though it's more of a contemporary kind of mirror it's not a black mirror but you know the mirror that just moves through space and throughout the film that potentially it's not clear but potentially haunts the protagonist that carries through the film is it the opening scene that is is the haunting factor? The, is that the, <laughs> there yeah. is a big there's a big scene just in case anyone's going to watch this down the track. I think it's probably R rated for the opening scene. Is that safe to say? I think it would be R rated. I'm not rating films, but if if I was rating it and I was aware that like children or families were going to watch this thing, that I'd want a realistic rating. There's a pretty confronting scene at the very opening where there's a. a male having a good old time in front of the mirror very full frontal no bars held and i'm like just off the back of your description now it's i'm wondering is that the haunting moment that follows this character or what's the intention of having such a shocking opening scene it comes from research into the black mirrors where they would be made malefic or they would be charged and one of the ways that mirrors historically were charged to become haunted was through like body fluid one of the main ones was male semen so it would be rubbed or polished into the surface and that would actually give like a charge that would be the fluid and the act of polishing would would give these objects their their sort of like potency and their their haunting I guess so I wanted to carry that into the film because I thought that was that was interesting but to read that connected to like an archival object and like a historical document as to how these things worked I jumped out of the page when I read that so when I was writing the script it just came into it and I guess like not being a screenwriter I think I just wrote without thinking about it too much so I just wrote that scene almost with the first thing that I wrote because it stands out from the rest of the work so I guess I never thought that it was going to be in the film I didn't think that it was going to be possible to film it because you're asking a lot of an actor you got to find the right person obviously you need the right audience just the act itself like getting somebody to do that is quite confronting I guess the act of watching it's confronting but I wanted that like I wanted something that had your attention but stood out from the rest of the footage so that at any point in the film you might be like what's that first scene about I feel like having when you watch the first scene from then on when the mirror appears you have emotion to the mirror like you have a feeling about the mirror that's unsettling or yeah. a bit awkward or yeah. a bit like it, it adds it's been tension with. <laughs> the mirror's been fucked with yeah literally. and does this person who's looking at it know the history of the mirror like hearing you talk about it it, it made me feel probably how you intended or, yeah. or how these mirrors have that energy yeah super interesting it's also it's connected to it, it makes this sort of maleficency and this like object connected in a very literal way to the body Um, and I felt that was very interesting and I couldn't work out any other way to convey that and I felt that like I said the act of reading that was confronting so maybe the act of having to like to image that in the film makes sense that it's confronting too but also I don't come from I don't come from like a filmmaking background like I'm not a director I'm not a cinematographer I come from like an art world background so I think maybe what I do differently in that space without necessarily comparing it to the film world think through ways of bringing an idea into an image or into a form and that just became a way to present an idea through an image 
So it became easy in a way, like when I shared the draft with you, I have a disclaimer which won't be there when it's seen. But I'm aware, I guess, that people might be confronted by it, but that's also something that I want also. Yeah. It's been a great chat. It's almost time to wrap up. But I wanted to know what's where will this be shown? How do you want people to view this? And what's the next steps for this project? I guess the ideal way that I want the work to be exhibited is in an art world context or an art institutional context. You've gone back to the art world, you, the I mean, one it, you were trying to break away from. No, I don't think I was ever trying to break away. I've always been aware that this is an artwork more than a film. And as an artist, it's not something that I necessarily had to felt I needed to differentiate. But working with actors and film crew, I felt like I was constantly differentiating like where the work wasn't a film. So that kind of in a weird way became important, whereas maybe previously it mightn't have been so much. I just knew that I was making an artwork. But the fact that people were seeing this as like a film forced me to consider, okay, what's the difference between a long-form video artwork and a film? One of the ways that I was conscious of maintaining this thing as an artwork was through the installation of the work. So I've been editing for like a two-screen version ideally will be situated in like an exhibition space as like an installation I don't intend it initially at least to be like a a linear like a to z like you sit down you get your popcorn you watch the opening scene you watch it to the end and then you leave it's just going to be like situated on a loop in a space so yeah that makes a lot of sense not knowing that before I watched it but knowing that now I can see how that could uh, it could change the meaning for someone sitting in at a different stage as well which is quite interesting yeah so any point of that work is the potential beginning Mm. for somebody and you might only get them for like 10 or 15 seconds so it's a like it's an hour film so there's not necessarily that time commitment that you might have with like cinema where you're carving out 90 minutes of your time to watch the whole thing so I was very much aware from, of that. So that sort of changed the way that I made images, like produced the work, changed the way that I edited the work. And to go back to your comment that you felt it quite abstract, I think I like that because it means that there's something in the current edit which is linear. It needs to be linear. It's on, uh, it's on Vimeo, so there's no other way to do it. But I don't necessarily want the work to sort of exist in this very linear kind of capacity which is, I know it's a paradox because it's a linear film and like at any point it does if you walk in there exactly halfway through it still picks up on a linearity but there's like a sort of I guess a disjuncture or like it's untethered from the beginning of the film so I guess the work has to be like compelling at every stage like every scene almost every shot has to be exacting as an image in a way to keep people there mm. that was my thought anyway because I felt like I couldn't be lazy and just have a sloppy scene because people that could be someone's like introduction to the work the one gonna, bit they watch leave. <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. alright so what does success look like for this project I'm hearing that it's you want people to see it in potentially some kind of gallery space in person with the dual screen where they walk in at it and see it in a non-linear format potentially But talking about the business of art rather than the process of creation, what are the next steps that you have to do to make this a viable or successful project? Or is it more about the process that's for you personally, the biggest benefit is having gone through the process? Or is there needs to be some kind of financial or progression of the work to make it successful for you? Good questions. Probably an easy one to answer. It's more for me the process. I think I look at my practice and the outcomes of my practice as leading to like a way that my practice can be sustainable. I know that there's no money in the outcomes. Like I know it's not like I'm going to sell it as like an artwork or it's going to get like royalties through a streaming platform. That's liberating for me. It means that I have to sort of look for funding and work in a way that sits outside of those systems. And I try to to arrive at those, I guess, like funding solutions or the economic solutions in a way that sort of works for the projects and work 
for me. So with this one, I was quite lucky, like funding-wise. I got like Australia Council for the Arts funding. I got, like I said, Create New South Wales funding. Um, yeah, I got other forms of funding. And I've had support, like even Emporium, like supporting me through a space to like edit. So I guess going through the process of making the work in a way that's sort of much more on my own terms, it puts me in a situation where hopefully my practice can be sustainable, not self-sufficient because I rely on funding, but it means that I can use the projects that I work on to to move forward, to apply for more funding, to keep like challenging myself. My next project, I want to work with lens filter manufacturers to like actually change how images are recorded and seen. And that kind of comes out of this, but there's no commercial need to do that. Like it's just inquisitive and it's like, how do I make this, like how do I set this up so that it's like sustainable so that I can move forward? I don't know if that answers your question or it just confuses it. But I'm not deluding myself and thinking that it's the smartest, like, career move to make <laughs> these, like, kind of abstract video artworks. But, it, yeah, it's just about having a sustainable practice. Yeah, interesting. Progressing your capabilities and um, I suppose there will be some exposure. Is this a new space for you to move into producing works like this? Yeah, I wish I didn't produce this one. I wish I did have a producer. I think that next, like I, I want to make work in this space. Like I, I like this sort of like longer form way of making an artwork or making a film. I think moving forward, I'll definitely be taking like a lot of the lessons from this project into future ones because they're big. Like I didn't realize how big that they were and it's on me because the thing just kept growing. But now I have a much better sense of what I need going into these like bigger projects than what I knew two years ago. Yeah, interesting. Thanks for jumping on for a chat and giving us so much background into your creative process and how can people see the work? Do you have any places where people will be able to see it or how can they see your work and follow along on the journey? So I guess my work would just be through my website, justinbalmain.com. I tend not to have like video videos that I've made online this one won't be online and that's there's reasons for that I think it would just be like keep an eye out hopefully. jump on the website jump have on a look website. but um, I'm sure the Emporium will be sharing any screening events or updates so you can probably follow along there yes yeah definitely and yeah and I will be keeping everyone that's involved stakeholders and supporters like Emporium in the loop so yeah when it is at a stage where it's kind of complete and I've got somewhere to exhibit then yeah Emporium will be one of the first to know good one thanks for jumping on Justin and all the best with the rest of the project cool. thanks Reese. thanks for having me listening to Country Creatives Podcast, hosted by Reese Hendy. It's produced by Amy Chapman with support from the Emporium Creative Hub in Mitchell Street, Bendigo. If you'd like to listen to any of our past episodes, you can visit us at emporiumcreativehub.com.au slash podcast. You can also contact the team there or find us on Instagram at country underscore creatives. We have an episode for you every two weeks, so if you'd like to be the first in the know, please subscribe to Country Creatives wherever you listen to your podcasts.